Stephanie. And I'm Summer. And you're listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Welcome back, broken people. Today we have Annie Slasher. She's an artist and a blogger. And she opened up to us about some really personal stuff, part of which was the time that her children spent in foster care. So Stephanie, before we move into the interview, I wanted to talk to you for a moment about this because... You and I have both been foster parents, you more recently than I, um, but we've both been there. We both understand that the point of fostering is to help, hopefully, keep families together and reunify. But one comment that Annie made during this um, was that it felt like, even as the parent who was just doing everything she could, she was busting her ass to get things together so she could get her kids back, and it felt like everybody in that system, from the caseworkers to the um, to the foster homes, were actively working against her. And That's because it's often true. Um, absolutely, it's often true. And I mean, I know you and I talked about this online debate that we saw, where um, some foster parents were actually um, thought it was justified. They, the complaint was that the parent when they called for a phone visitation to talk to their child, the parent used curse words. Not an abusive way. They weren't being abusive. They just said these quote whatever inappropriate words and for one let me and just say talking about the system and 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 the system is it's, it's it very is messed up. up yeah and it's I, absolutely and so it's an appropriate usage of of the words in the situation and it's a great way to to, to vent frustration right. about a very broken system and i'm just i just want to say i'm glad that nobody thinks that it's okay acceptable to cut off my contact with my children for saying fuck because i tell you what yes. i absolutely do say things like that in front of them yes. it does not I, harm them it does not it does damage not. them but you know what does harm them keeping children from talking to their parents so I let's talk that. right yes. so let's yeah. talk about that these fosters who are deliberately undermining the parents and i mean i know you've seen it as well as i have sharing uh-huh sharing tricks and tips on how to move things towards termination and undermine uh, of these parental rights and undermine these parents so that these children cannot go home. It's, it's, you know, I want to start out by, by saying if anybody who is listening who has considered becoming a foster parent or a caretaker, we desperately, desperately need you. Um, I, I can't stress it enough. If you've got a bed and, and you've got a drawer and, and you're healthy enough to love, we need you um, because these are the, some of the situations that we, that we deal with. You know, um, I'm on several forums. I've been, been asked to, to be in forums because, you know, as, as Indigenous women, that these families often need to have um, exposure to because they have zero ties. Um, ICWA is not always implemented the way that it can and should be, and therefore we we oftentimes will find our children have been placed into white family. <sighs> from the bottom of my heart, I I wish that these people would be be educated from day one. Their role is to be a temporary caretaker and to help facilitate healing between the child and the parent and the family. 
in well, my experience, the reason they are going into foster care is because they want to adopt children. Right. And they're, I, they're I, not there to best meet the needs of the child. Right. They're, they're not there to bridge a gap between them and their family and their culture. In fact, if anything, we see time and time again that they're disdaining the child's culture, not seeing that they are directly harming the child. Oh, I saw, so. I saw a parent use the phrase, the tribe, as if it was a pejorative the other day. I, yes. I started angry tweeting about it because it's ridiculous. Yes, yes. Like if you feel that way about the child's then you're an people, and, mm-hmm. and, and I, I tweeted that I said you don't, you should not have that child. You are not an appropriate placement for that child. And then I went back and responded to my own tweet later, and I said, on second thought, I think you should close your home because I don't yes. want you influencing any child. Yes. Well, I I, I was going to say, I think you give them a little too much credit in saying that I wish they were um, informed from the beginning, because in my experience, Mm -hmm. and I took my foster classes um, many years apart, uh, because Mm -hmm. the two two girls, even though they're sisters, they came at many years apart, both times around, we were told from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. your job is to bridge, your job is to help. Uh, facilitate reunification to help these kids maintain bonds with their family you are Mm -hmm. told all of those at least in Oklahoma and Oklahoma has a reputation for being one of the worst systems so I'd imagine they're probably getting this other places as well I think they're ignoring Mm -hmm. it because they are going in for filling a void in themselves rather than with the priority of helping these children yes and in Oklahoma as well and I don't know if this is still the case but it was when I was there there are churches who um, have contracts with the state and their training can look ex- just entirely different from from what you would expect from from DHS which is more secular than if you're looking at a Lutheran a Cap- you know Catholic or, or a, a Baptist um, contract we do we situation. are as a state moving towards a lot more private agencies which I object to but nobody cares Uh what I think Um, but the training is supposed to be standardized so they are supposed to have that now unfortunately we did recently uh, pass law where they can discriminate where these religious institutions which in my opinion I'll state for the record I don't believe that religious institutions have any business being involved in this you shouldn't be playing your religion into placing children um, they, they, sh- they, they shouldn't even be, you know, I have seen some agencies successfully navigate more so than others. And so, you know, for, for a long time, Lutheran Social Services did um, emergency sheltering for the state of Oklahoma. And um, so, you know, I, I did see a successful program there. But when you when you look at the, the history of um you know, boarding schools and child removal and, and genocide, this is particularly problematic. So to swing yeah. back over to, to the conversation that, that mm-hmm. we were talking about, um, the, the parent was talking to the child yes. and, and swore about DHS, and um, there was a long discussion that followed thereafter of foster parents saying, um, you know, this is offensive to me and not in my home, um, and so I'm absolutely cutting off the contact with, with, with their parents until a judge tells me otherwise. How did that make you feel? 
that is not in the best interest of the child. And if you cannot, because the thing is, and that's what I told that person was cursing does not harm this child. And the needs of the child are more important than your wants, which is I'm uncomfortable hearing the word fuck. Well, fucking get over it because this child's needs are more important than your delicate Mm -hmm. sensibilities. Go clutch your pearls and faint on the couch and call Mm -hmm. it a day. But you do not get to (laughs) sever a bond between a parent and their child because you don't like the word they use. And and if you feel mm -hmm. entitled to do that... You are not appropriate for fostering because fostering is about helping this child with their trauma because it is inherently traumatic to be removed from your family. Yes. No matter what. To discriminate against their family is also extremely problematic when you are othering the parent and calling the parent inappropriate. Let's not even pretend like that's not throwing dirt at the child. They identify strongly with their mother, their father, their siblings, their aunts, their uncles, and their grandparents. And when when these people have such strong feelings against the, the original culture and state of their family, it is inherently harmful and it creates a situation of dissonance. It distances mm-hmm. the child from what is best for, for them, which is a connection to their family. And I also felt like there were some people who were getting defensive at the fact they, that I kept, were. but mm-hmm. at the fact that just something as simple as the fact that I kept calling this child's parent their parent. If you yes. notice, there was a lot of the birth mom or the bio mom. And I'm like, no, yes. that is These that child's mother. Adopted. Yes, that's why you I You are I, a paid caretaker. Mm-hmm. And I know that upsets yes. people and I know that offends people. But I'm telling you from but, somebody who did it for yes. years, I was a paid caretaker. Did I love yes. them? Absolutely. I still love yes. them very much. And would it have broken my heart into a million pieces if they had had to leave my house? Absolutely. Would I have yes. done everything I could to make that a healthy transition and handover? Absolutely. Because that's what would yes. have been in the best interest of my girls. I well, wish and, there and had been a way are, to keep them with mm-hmm. their mother. If they There's are just so it. uncomfortable with the facts and the realities of the situation, if, it, if their feelings are so sensitive that they cannot be called that which they are, which is a paid caretaker, they are getting a, a, a paid sat dollar amount to keep that child in their home each and every day, then they're not fit to deal with the difficulties and challenges that arise with parenting a tribe who has been removed from their family, which even if nothing else has happened, even if they had no grandparents and the parents just died, it is horrifically traumatic. Anytime you remove a child, it is inherently harmful. Today we have Annie. She is an artist and a blogger and a all-around incredible person. So Annie, tell us about your art and your blog. Um, Okay, my blog focuses on reviewing adult um, urban fantasy, fantasy, sci-fi, um, comics, and novels, and typically, or sometimes, there's paranormal romance or romance involved, you know, is like a subgenre as well. And then my art, I have uh, worked by design art mostly. I do beaded jewelry and wire wrapping stones and kind of whatever I feel like. <laughs> and some photography, but that's kind of been put on the back burner, but I like doing the photography too. 
Oh, me too. My, you know, I, I used to have my camera with me everywhere I went, and I don't think I've actually taken a photo with it in a couple months. So we're going to have to get back to that. <laughs> I know. I'm excited. Like I said, trip, we need, there needs to be a whole plan, so we're all behind the lens. There does. We, we need to make a trip to Colorado soon, and we, we can just take photos all along the way I agree okay so you have a couple of kids too right I do, I how, do. how fun is this whole teenage parenting thing because I'm over it loads loads of fun so much fun not really do you ever want to just like <laughs> sell them or pay someone to take them or something uh, <laughs> I just feel like everything you do everything you do is wrong number one number two you are always judged constantly by every on your on your kids what they say That's what true. they do they act everything is a reflection of you directly which is not fun That's a good point I I'm just, I, I tell people all the time when I hear them say, oh, I want a baby or whatever. I'm like, okay, babies are cute. And this is the universe's trick to keep you from killing them. And then you get paid back because no good deed goes unpunished. You get paid back by them turning into teenagers. And it I is. You remember like when they were little and you remember thinking, oh, this will be so much easier when they're older. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, and you'll have so much time. And then every year you realize that was bullshit. Right? I totally, because, you know, my older two are 15 and 17. And I completely understand now why my grandmother's generation married their kids off at 14. Because that's about the time you can't stand them anymore. And you just want them the fuck out of your house. Yes. And I mean, I love them. But yeah, my 17-year-old decided to get mouthy with me yesterday. And he bowed up to me by text message. I'm like, don't think I'm going to forget. Just because you can do this just because I'm not in the same room with you. Because I'm not going to (laughs) forget. And you're going to have to be in the same room with me again. (laughs) And especially being a mom of a son, you just feel like there's this constant background fear that they're going to turn into these boys and men that are so toxic. And it's just that constant, that whole thing of, oh my gosh, is this a warning sign that I'm raising fucking Brock Turner? Luckily, luckily so far, I don't see that, but you you always have that moment where you're like, "Ah!" like, yeah, I think that's true. And that's, I think that's why I don't freak out so much about some of the other stuff. Like, I mean, you know, I call the 15 year old Cheech because, you know, uh, catching him with the weed and stuff like that. I'm like, you know what? If this is the worst you do, I'm good. Like, (laughs) I will fight. I I will fight with you about why I don't want you to kill your brain cells. But as long as that's our biggest issue, we're good. Like, because like you said, that Brock Turner sort of thing, fear (sighs) is always back there in my head. And I'm like, I will have to kill you myself if you do that kid so I know and I am not one of those parents who justifies everything that their kids do you know even they were little and so I'm very realistic and I know that I would never make excuses for them but it's still like that conflict of oh you need to protect them and oh hey hold and there's consequences for your actions and suck it up (sighs) yeah I, I I try I'm trying to find the balance somewhere between consequences for your actions but I'm trying to keep you out of jail too I mean if he did something horrendous I would do it but I you know then there's nothing I can do but yeah the I I had to pull him out of school uh when we still lived in another town because of the the weed and I'm like I'm just trying to keep you out of prison kid like this is this is where the bar is at at right now (laughs) we're even worried about that it shouldn't even be we shouldn't be ticketing kids mine you know got a ticket for tobacco in school 
and it was like I mean with an actual ticket like so how does that work how how does that work like they give how can they give fines in the school I don't understand how that works they here anyways I'm in north Texas so we're in a country suburb kind of well outside the suburbs in the country in a small town in um in Texas and here they pretty much it's all at the discretion of the principal. So the principal one time can give somebody, you know, two days of ISS. And another kid, they can literally have the cop issue them a minor in possession of tobacco ticket and then give them whatever consequence too. So it was, I just don't see that that's productive, even with the weed and tickets. Like I don't see how that long-term discourages kids from making better choices. I don't either. Right? I always kind of figure a fine just means that it's okay as long as you're rich enough to pay for it. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing is, yeah, fines, but that's not really a consequence to the kid. Well, no. But a lot of things they do aren't, you know, as far as trying to police uh, minors' behaviors. Yeah. So, So, yeah, I felt the same way. I was like, hey, if this is the worst thing he does at this point. Right? And, like, tobacco. I mean, how old is he again? I can't remember. He's 15. 15. That happened. He must have been 14. Okay. I remember what we were doing at that age. Our kids are angels. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty good. (laughs) He he has much better, but he's really sporty, and so he's very sport-focused, which does kind of put the kibosh on a lot of the stuff I did and we did because there, you know, there was a drug test, and they were were drug testing. I'm not sure in middle school, but I know they were drug testing. They drug test them? If you were in anything for sports, oh God, yes. Wow. He gets drug tested probably, I don't know, four or five times a year, probably. Of course, that wouldn't have been a deterrent to us because we weren't in sports. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember my, well, exactly. We didn't do anything productive. When I changed high schools, they told me even if I joined the chess club, they would have a right to drug test me. So I literally didn't do anything, and that's that. Chess club? Yeah, like literally, if you were in anything they considered extracurricular, they would have a right to drug test you. And so I didn't do anything. I wouldn't have either. There's huge. I wouldn't have either. I mean, I can't focus to play chess without being stoned. So I don't know how that's supposed. <laughs> I mean, how do you how can you justify you know like joining the science club or the debate team and drug testing people? To me, it's crazy. You should be trying to include kids in things, right. regardless of that period, because the more social structure and the better support they have, then they are not going to be inclined to do those things. Or there's some of us. Okay, I remember, and I know the listeners aren't aware. Annie and I went to a few years of high school together, so that's how we first knew each other a bazillion years ago and I remember my senior year I would come pick you up before school and we would go drive around that little two mile square back there by uh, Belzoni Cemetery because nobody's back there and there's no traffic and we would go drive around there and get high and then go to school and that is literally because you know I was still I I have PTSD I was had not processed any of that trauma that was literally the only way I could make it to school if it hadn't been for the weed I would not have been in school I would have dropped out. So. Yeah, I don't know how I would have been either because I did really good and you did really good in school. Oh, yeah. And so but the whole thing of, you know, that's a good question. If I wouldn't have been able to do that, who knows what school actually would 
would have looked like for me. I don't think it would, sadly, and I'm not encouraging children to smoke pot, okay? I'm just saying with Katie and when you have other stuff going on, right. I don't think that my grades and everything else would have been as good as they were um, if I wouldn't have had some kind of self-medication, unfortunately. Same, absolutely. Cause, and I, it wasn't for lack of trying. I tried to get help. My parents told me no. So then yeah. I had to. You know, the only other option was to self-medicate until I could move out, which I did right after high school when I was 17. But uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think when they make these policies, they fail to consider all factors when they make no tolerance policies. Well, I just think society's general, you know, general view, especially on marijuana, okay? Society's view is a little uh, not up probably with where it should be on things like that. That's, that's for sure. True. That's true. And I think that's the case too of all substances, really, because you and I have talked a lot yeah. about addiction and because we've dealt with a lot of people in our life who've had substance abuse and addiction issues and the attitudes and the way people think and act towards that it can be quite damaging and definitely unhelpful. So yes. <laughs> why do you think that is? I think that it's just like a cultural stigma of it. You know, I think right now, for whatever reason, like, okay, you look at like the 70s and it was much more accepted. It was viewed a little more of like, you know, like like we would view alcohol right now. Okay. You know, as a way to relax, as a way to chill, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the addicts were kind of those severe, severe cases. But mm-hmm. we've got nothing but worse. And I think a lot of it is the social pressures and the social aspects of kind of getting away from basic social support and um, family support and all of that. Those are big things. And it's really not, you know, we're just so busy. Yeah, there's so damn busy anymore. But I don't know. I think it affects everybody's mentality, you know, and those of us that are already probably prone to things like anxiety or don't have great family structures and support. That's kind of what happens, especially I think with teenagers. I know it was definitely with me mm-hmm. was not having like a, I, mean, I had a little family support, but not having really support necessarily in a parental view. I started hanging out with other people who also needed family, mm. and those tended to be people who were using. Right, and then it's kind of a downward spiral from there because you get sucked into other things, and that was totally my choice, but. That I think that that's what happens. And I don't know, I think even right now, like if you look at, you know, like, um, what is it, like Al-Anon? It's not Al-Anon. Oh, it's like FA, which is like Families Anonymous. Okay. You know, even with how they kind of preach and teach parents or other people and family members how to deal with I'm not sure. I used to agree with it, the whole, oh, if they're using, you don't have anything to do with them. And I'm not sure that really and truly studies have backed up that that's really what's best for everybody. I don't I think, think so. I think that people who tend to come out of it are, are people who had support available. And it's really hard to get that if you're an addict. Most of the time, your families turn your back on you. You know, even if you want to get help, there's this whole thing of you're never, you're never going to get it. Right. You don't really want it or you're just doing that because you got caught or something like that. And then that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think you're right. The data isn't showing that that's necessarily effective. In fact, it's showing the opposite more. We used to think of addiction as a strictly chemical problem, but now we're seeing more and more that the opposite of addiction is 
is not sobriety, it's human connection. And you can't get clean and stay clean without that connection. And then also dealing with whatever underlying issues are there. Yeah. So, and so many people get clean and they're still addicts. I mean, oh, yes. Whether they switch to God or. Oh, know, I saw that a lot as a preacher's kid. Maybe it's even something. Well, we do. I yeah. mean, we do. And even sometimes it's healthy stuff, which is great. But a lot of the times it's really not dealing with, you know, the center of why you chose to escape reality. Right. And I think the problem with substituting, even if it's religion, because that's one thing that a lot of people think is wonderful and healthy. Well, they, they switch to God and they go to church and whatever. But the problem is, unless they're actually dealing with the underlying issue and getting actual coping mechanisms, then you, it's not a long-term solution. And that's why people end up with this continual cycle of, because once whatever that new dependency is doesn't fulfill the need, and none of them ever will fully. If they don't, yeah. if they don't learn the skills to deal with that, then you're just gonna flip back into, the, into another form of addiction. And it creates yep. this cycle. And I think that's part of the family problem too, because when you're going through those cycles, you know, people, you lie, you do all sorts of things to support that. And so you burn all those bridges and everybody's burnt out and they don't want to deal with you and they don't want to help you and they don't believe you when you say you want help again for the 30th time. Yeah. <laughs> and I get it. It can be hard. You know, I've been there, helped. I mean, you knew through the whole thing, I was helping a friend try to get clean. We went through what? three rounds of detox, um, two on his own, and then uh, the third as an outpatient clinic. And, you know, he was clean for a good four months. And then he relapsed again, and I don't hear from him anymore. I haven't heard from him in um, about four or five months now. So yeah. his, I think he feels a lot of guilt and shame when he talks to me because of everything that yeah. we went through trying to get him clean. And, you know, hopefully someday he will get clean. But that's one of the issues that I saw with him was even when he would be physically clean and sober, developing those skills and how to co how to cope with life he doesn't have those and so and over time he had lost all of his connections because he had shut everyone out so there's mm -hmm. just no support system there there's no safety net well and the guilt you know because like i i was an i was an addict i mean i did mm -hmm. pretty much everything um it didn't really start until after high school mm -hmm. i just smoked pot in high school but right. after high school you know i was just like a downward spiral deep you know, I did almost every drug, did not do heroin, I never did ecstasy, but basically, mm -hmm. it's way easier to cut out those two things I didn't do. Right. <laughs> and I pretty much did them every way possible. I mean, it mm -hmm. just, it, it was, that was, I went down there. And I still, the guilt you carry from knowing how you affected other people and, you know, I had other issues that caused, you know, when the two were really little, when my children were really little. Mm -hmm. And the guilt you carry around is nobody is harder on themselves from an addict's point of view than that addict. Right. If they're really clean and better, they... That guilt is, it's still, I mean, for me, it's been, I think I've been clean over 13 years, and it's still, if I just sit down and think about it, it's still this huge cloud of guilt, because you can't change it. You cannot right. change those mistakes, or how maybe you hurt people, and the consequences, just even putting your life that far behind. There's nothing you can do. You can only move forward and make your life better. But getting rid of that guilt, I, oh man, if somebody knows how to do that, you can let me know because I still haven't fucking managed that one. <laughs> now, it's, it's been a while. Oh my God. Right? It's been a while for you. Do you have 
have anybody like in your family or in your life that brings up those things from the past? Because I know that's a problem for some people. Probably not as much. Sometimes dealing with my mother is makes me just, oh, she's like the one sensitive one because I feel like more of a parent to her sometimes. Right. Good God, if she's listening to this, she'll never forgive me, but it's true. I will never tell and her. <laughs> she, she needs a lot, and I don't ever necessarily think about using, mm-hmm. but I still, it is definitely what made me realize much later why I did, because a lot and I'm not right. necessarily um, don't have the mentality or the mental ability to deal with somebody that needs me that much you know like right. it's just it, that's just how I am and so I did realize oh good lord no wonder all you know I spiraled out of it and that was definitely not her it was me I think with me definitely it was like the defining moment of I'd had the same boyfriend basically from I don't know, eighth grade and then we broke up my senior year, we got back together, and then he left me for this other girl. And it, it was that whole severance of what I had visioned my future to be like. Like oh, I had totally right. just seen it, even though it may not have been like fully mapped out. And his family, I was so close with even his younger siblings, and I just felt like it was they were my family. Right. And so being severed from that definitely was like that instant defining moment of just not caring. I just didn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. I really did not give a shit about myself or about anything. And it was my mom had left my senior year, and I stayed you know down Mm -hmm. there where we were um in southeast Oklahoma by myself I had no family nobody and it was just you know just just very dark so that was the beginning of the spiral oh definitely yep so and that's not I definitely don't place blame on him it's definitely just the whole um letting yourself kind of become consumed by somebody and putting so much stock in how I had visioned my, you know, after 18, kind of going out on your own adult life, and then it was ripped away, and, and so you, it was just totally right. lost. And you didn't know how to deal with that. No. Yeah. No. So that's how it started. How did how did you find your way out? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is a super tangent. You know, a lot of people, trust me, even other de- addicts, totally this is like a line that so many addicts will even judge other addicts for. Mm-hmm. So I was pregnant with mm-hmm. my youngest and I was clean pretty much the whole time. Mm-hmm. And we moved back in with my mother and I started using at the very end and got caught when they induced me. I tested positive. Okay. So they took her from me um, at the hospital and took both of them clearly and so it was like a six-month process of jumping through hoops and it was a miracle that we even got them back that soon my only real saving grace was that luckily the attorney could see like my oldest was very mentally healthy very developed very 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 well cared for very bonded to both me and his dad and that held a lot of weight you know there was clear that even though that had happened that he was very well cared for right. and neglect even though it was neglect because they just consider if you're using as a parent here it's neglect but that he wasn't um, neglected and he was bonded and everything was very age appropriate we knew how to parent um, and so that was when I was just like that's it I'm done Right. You know, just the trauma of, you know, having somebody take your newborn away. Well, certainly it's a, that was a 
a serious awakening. I had to make a choice. It was, do I give up my whole life and my kids, or do I decide from here on out, I'm done, and I was done. Right, and some people can't make that choice as much as they want to. I I see a lot of parents who, at that point, actually creates a a harder spiral, (laughs) because they they don't know how to cope, and they don't know how to pull themselves out of that. Yeah. Um, I was lucky. I think I'm one of those people where if you tell me I can't do something, mm -hmm. I'm going to prove you wrong. And there was absolutely a lot of that from kind of everybody. Uh, You screwed this up, and now you're never going to be anything, and you're never going to come out of this, and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that's part of probably where my motivation came from was literally, yeah, I'll show you. And I pretty much did. I mean, definitely I still have fault, but I definitely, that was just it. And that, that is what made it easy. Right. And you did, you did amazing. You've built a great life for yourself. Can you comment on how hard it is as a parent in that system? to get services because that's the big misconception I think and I, I complain about this a lot <laughs> as a social worker and as a former foster parent but I don't think people believe me. <laughs> a primary reason in a lot of cases that parents don't get their kids back isn't for lack of trying it's lack of resources and they can't get programs and they can't get the help they need. Yeah here because I was even though we were living back in Oklahoma we were living here when I had insurance we'd only been living back in Oklahoma with my mom for about a month mm-hmm. um, so all of the insurance and everything was here in Texas and she was born here in Texas so Texas was actually the one who came and intervened they do fairly well here mm-hmm. I mean I feel like it was still a huge challenge to get services but it was really hard was I had quote been clean too long to do anything inpatient right Okay, like literally they'll tell you, well, if you go use and come back, we can take you, which is fucking ridiculous. (laughs) And I mean, and so there's outpatient, but normally you end up on a waiting list. They want you to do like parenting classes, same thing, there's a waiting list. Um, They consider here six months is as soon as you can get a kid back once they've been removed. And you're lucky. It is absolute luck if you can actually accomplish all those things in the six months. Oh, yeah. Now, at that point in time, I had stayed with my mom there, and there actually was drug services there, and they were actually really good, and they were based on my income. Mm -hmm. So Texas let me do my rehab through Oklahoma there, and I was really lucky and had a really good counselor, and she moved me really, you know, along and could see that I was super self-aware. And so I, I ended up being really lucky that I got everything done and we got ourselves situated quick enough for all of that to go as well as it did. But it, it was hard. I mean, here I will say I think they may be better definitely than Oklahoma about services, but you still feel like everybody's your enemy. You know, Mm -hmm. instead of them helping, it's this constant, well, jump through this hoop. Oh, well, jump through this hoop. And I'm still not sure that removing children in situations like that is necessarily in anybody's best interest. Right. Unless the kids are being, you know, physically beaten or molested or something like that, I still think the same outcome would have applied if there would have been in-house.
house treatment services that right. were provided while the children were still in the home. Yes, the family preservation services. I mm-hmm. agree, and the data backs that up. Um, removal yeah. is a huge trauma in itself. In fact, if you um, there are some studies, which I wish I had pulled up now, that show that removal is oftentimes reported as the most traumatic event yes. in a foster child's life, yeah. including whatever abuse or neglect they were enduring in their home. Mm-hmm. You know, here, a lot of people, you know, may be lucky enough to have family that take them and right. um, they didn't want the kids to go to my mom because she was in Oklahoma and that's where we were living. They didn't want the kids to go out of state. Right. And then my husband's family was like, oh, we're too old, but then filed for custody of his oldest one. It was ridiculous. <laughs> wait, so, wait. They, they said they were too old to take your kids, they but they, but they filed the for ones. custody of so his they, older daughter. Yeah, they did. Wow. Because CPS ended up getting, invest, you know, with his ex-wife are totally separate. She was basically domestic violencing her husband to the point where CPS intervened. And so they filed, and actually we ended up with custody of her as well. At the end of a year, we'd been clean a year, and ended up with her, and even CPS testified that she was healthier in our care than anybody else's. Do you know why they were willing to file for custody of her, but not your children? I mean, she's always kind of been a favorite, (laughs) you know, and I really try not to speculate about why somebody would let, you know, a two-year-old and a newborn go into foster care and then file for custody of another one, but... Um, I just wondered if they had said something had in the years. Some, <laughs> yeah, luckily we had some ex, ex, a little more expanded families, like my husband's um, cousin and his wife, who were, you know, about his age. Mm-hmm. They ended, well, I guess they're older. They spent 10 years older, 15 years older than him, and they actually ended up finally being approved for family placement because everybody else hum hot around. Well, if they don't get them back, then then what happens? And it was like, CPS didn't want to hear that. So, you know, luckily we am having them moved into a family placement, but in the beginning, that's, that is absolutely not what happened. And his family, some of his family even fought that placement, which was crazy. They fought the family placement? Mm-hmm. They fought the internal family. It would have been my husband's mother. They really didn't want the kids to go with with his cousin it was really weird if you're not gonna take them I don't think you get a say where they go I know I don't I you know trying not to he tries so hard not to speculate about other people's crazy and how they justify things that they did and you know but I don't I don't know but definitely once they got in a family placement it was better you know but um I just don't and I, you know, now at my job, working for an attorney, you know, a few years after that, I'm still at the same office there. I've been there 11 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we work with CPS clients for a long time. She was appointed routinely on CPS cases. And, you know, that's just what I saw. Most of the cases that they were taking kids, especially here, mm-hmm. are all drug-related, and very few of them were abused. It was oh, ridiculous. Yes. I saw a case recently. The child was literally removed for one joint in the house. And I we're not even clear on the timeline because they were reported by family members. So we're not even, we've never even been clear on the timeline as to whether the child was actually in the house when yeah. the drugs were in the house. But literally the child 
was removed for one joint and they lost their child. Yeah. And there was a lot of push from the family too, that my, my husband and I could not be together and stay clean. And, you know, at one point we lived separately and then, you know, my mom kind of booted me out just because I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Just because it's your mom. Well, yeah. It's one of those things where you just feel like everybody's kicking you when you're down, when you're trying so hard. And his family is the one end up taking me in. And we did. We've been clean together and he still dealt with alcohol with him later. But I mean, all in all, that whole, I'm not so sure I agree with that mindset either. Maybe for some people, but I know for me that I was going to be clean regardless. Which, which mindset? Used, I just that, you, left. that you can't stay clean if you're together? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if they preach that there, but that was a, a big thing kind of here. I don't know that in CPS, I don't know that they really have a, a stated preference on that. I Pretty much the only time they tell you you have to leave them is if it's a domestic violence issue. And even sometimes then they're wishy-washy on that. I'm not sure what the current, as far as like social work and um, substance abuse, what their recommendations are. I don't think that there is an absolute idea of you have to be separate or anything like that. I I think they try to work on on the idea of not splintering your support system (laughs) unless you have to. Yeah. And it's really hard because you definitely feel like, especially because I'm white and my kids were white, that they were considered a very adoptable. Oh, absolutely. You know, like they were puppies. And like their they age. Were puppies. And everybody wanted them. And mm-hmm. that was terrifying. I mean, it was just this terrifying thought to think that I'm going to have to fight somebody. Oh, yes. You know, to get my kids back. Yeah. Didn't have- and their age, especially. They're super adoptable yes, exactly. at that age. I oh, see. Oh, yeah. newborn and a two-year-old. Are right. you kidding me? And you're right. About, and you're right about the race because I don't know how many people are aware of the <laughs> in private adoption there are actually sliding scale fees based on race and a healthy white baby makes the most money <laughs> yeah. and so because there's the most demand um and it's the same way in foster care there's a lot of people who go into foster care to adopt it's like it's like like I said like they do with dogs it's like this adopt yeah. to, like foster foster to adopt thing that it's total it is not basically the bar you're setting is our goal isn't really to keep families together. Absolutely. Our goal is really not to help. You know, Absolutely. the goal is we're going to set you up for failure. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard too because even the counseling, mm-hmm. the counseling is still, they're all going to, re, you know, report to, you know, your caseworkers. Right. And so, and you're so I don't know how, how well your therapy and counseling is working when you know every Everything you say can be used against you. Right. So you're going to tell them what they want to hear. So, yeah. Or at the very least, you're definitely probably not going to deal with some severe issues right. like a lot of people have because it brings up other red lights. Right. You know, do other things, huge other red flags. Like, let's say if you were molested and you needed to talk about that in therapy, maybe that's why you were an addict. Well, you can't say that when you're going through social services. Because then it totally becomes, oh, maybe this has happened to her kids, too. Right. They put it down as another risk factor. They do. Exactly. And that's just, I mean, luckily I didn't have that. But, I mean, I know 
from cases at work and everything else, you just know realistically that that's going to come up. And those people are not going to want to realistically deal with their real problems for these services they're being offered if it's just going to become fodder to use against you in a case later. And so then you just end up with people who still aren't being able to address the issues they have because most of them, when they're out of the system and can't get services through that system, most people can't afford proper mental health services. So they're not going to be able to continue therapy once they're through that. No, and here, um, and some of the counties are better than other counties here, Mm -hmm. but I mean, like where we're at, because we're in a poor county, there isn't, there are no services. There's none. It doesn't matter. It's, there's zero Mm -hmm. mental health services. And that is terrifying because how many of these people are using or potentially, you know, anything, even alcohol, whatever, or staying in bad relationships or, you know, have toxic people in their lives because they need mental health services and or and or prescriptions even in some of the cases and they don't have the ability to get them even if they're even if they want the help right and then they end up in jail we end up paying for it anyways right only they're more traumatized and their family's more fractured and and it's created this I say that a lot because, you know, my girls, um, they have the same mother, and I say that a lot. I feel like their situation is, in a lot of ways, because the system failed their mother. She's not a horrible person. She does have some deficiencies that I don't really think are any fault of her own, for the most part, to be honest. And I think the system failed her, and that's the reason why she's not I mean she she loves her children she's just not actually capable of taking care of them yes and I and you know it in her family it is a generational <laughs> cycle with CPS and yes. I'm trying not to say too much because I don't want to you know to like out her to the world here but it, it is a problem and I feel like if the system hadn't failed for the last two generations yeah. These children wouldn't have gone through what they went through and they might have been able to stay with their mother. Yeah. Yeah. Better skills learned, you know, everything. Ability to obtain job skills is huge. You know, but there's really not the focus on that. It's it's unfortunate and I don't see how it's productive by but he wants to bring up like some kind of budget but the reality is i think there's way more money spent doing how we're doing it right now oh absolutely trying to help you know in the beginning by offering those things you know it pays itself back i feel like a certain amount of it is probably the same way like we were talking about the way people look at addicts i think parents in the child welfare system it's the same sort of thing they people look at them and they have this idea of them in their head and they just want to punish them (laughs) they don't want to help them and they don't want to keep the family together but they're more than happy to punish them and make life hard for them oh yeah yeah and I'm yes absolutely (laughs) I think so I mean they just make it where it's almost impossible I mean, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, I I had a, when my younger daughter first came to live with me, her mother was in prison. It wasn't her mother's fault that she got taken into foster care. She was not the one who <laughs> created that situation. She wasn't there. And 
her that caseworker sat in my living room and told me, I don't think these parents deserve a second chance. If you messed up, you shouldn't have another chance to get your kids back. I'm like, but you're talking about punishing children for the rest of their life by never letting them have contact with their families. I don't care. They're yeah. bad. They're just bad people. I'm like, you need to find a different job because <laughs> you should not well, be in this line think, of work. Yeah. And I think here it, for a long time, it was, a. I mean, it's sad that it was kind of a joke within the lawyer community, but this whole, because, you know, Northeast Dallas is, you know, mm-hmm. upper class, kind of middle upper class and very, you know, conservative. And there was this whole view of you had to quote, be the perfect parent to get your kids back and I'm like nobody's a fucking perfect parent I mean nobody is right there that's impossible and you cannot set the standard for people who already are disadvantaged higher than a general population it's ridiculous oh but they do and you see it all the time but they do the standard becomes so high it becomes unobtainable right and they don't know how their parenting probably wasn't real great and it's it's just i mean here it was like sometimes we'd see these cases where you're just like oh my goodness now the last four or five years i think that they've gotten trouble for it and so they've kind of slacked off on some of it <laughs> and they've quit doing that but it's absolutely true it's like you have to have this you know white picket fence kind of life for you to regain your children which is crazy and a certain standard of living um yeah, i've too. seen cases where they don't want to return the children because they may not have running water in the house but they may have a well to draw from right outside the back door and the yeah. social workers fighting putting a child back. They have clean water. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you <laughs> cut a child off from their family for that? Or I saw um, it was going to adjudication. It, they hadn't been determined, deprived children yet. But I saw the photos from the removal. And the, the removal claim was um, unsafe living conditions. And I looked at the, the the photos of the house and I'm like, so there's like a mattress propped up against the wall because they have family that stays there, um, that crashes there sometimes. So they like throw, throw the mattress down in the living room. They have like several loads of clean laundry on the couch. You know, I mean, none of it was hazardous. It was just messy and they were poor. So the okay. house is kind of run down but it's not dangerous and so literally they took these children out because they're busy and they're poor (laughs) yeah but the caseworker could not understand why that was problematic and i'm like at any given point in time you can go to my i have have four children in my house because my oldest one doesn't stay here he stays with my parents now at any given time you can walk into my house and it's likely to look like that because there's four children in this house (laughs) You know, it's and it looks like how how human beings are supposed to live in today's society and not be crazy because we're expected to work full time moms. Right. We're expected to, you know, do all the house stuff, do all the stuff with their kids who are supposed to be in all kinds of fucking activities. And it's like this never ending cycle. Right. And, I if, mean, and don't mess up or they'll take your children. Yeah, right. I mean, literally, I had um, 
a few months ago someone called um I don't know I had CPS I I guess apparently my son's father had been reported for whatever I don't know they don't ever tell you clear answers on what the report was um but when when the, there's a report on a child they investigate both both houses and I have seen so many unjustified removals that that's terrifying to me even though I know in my head everything on that checklist is perfectly fine in my house it's still sheer terror for that 30 days until they finish that report because yep. whoever reported that's the thing I will not report on a child unless there's like imminent danger to the child because yeah. the reality is you're risking they risk not only my youngest son they they risk all my children yeah being removed from my house for no reason <laughs> and yeah. And, of course, you know, it came back unsubstantiated. Like I said, I don't even know what the accusations were in the first place. Um, but it's terrifying because I have seen so many removed for unjustly. And then it's next to impossible to get them back. I've seen parental rights terminated on children that were never in danger in the first place. Which isn't how it's supposed to be i mean the kids are supposed to be in imminent danger for them to even have standing to be able to do something and it's just ah it's kind of crazy it's it's insane i i just it i think people trust the system without bothering to learn how it actually works i think yeah they end up in they danger make a lot people. of assumptions and a lot of judgments. Make assumptions. And a lot of judgments. If were taken away, then clearly you deserved it. And that's not always the case. Right, absolutely. I would say maybe 10% of the times it's actually the case. Right. And I don't think unless there's imminent danger, a child should be removed. I mean, like you said before, you can provide in-home services without removing a child. Yes, and most of the time, you know, you think about, you know, physical abuse and domestic violence and, um, you know, being sexually molested and all that. Those are the cases that rarely they actually find anything because they can't really prove it. Right. And you have to have. And those are the cases that should be, you know, in those situations. And I, I have yet to actually see that happen. I've seen a few, but it almost always requires um, disclosure from the child. And you know yeah. how rare it is for a child to feel it's safe rare. disclosing that. So unless, yeah. I mean, so unless it's situations like, you know, um, there was like a 12-year-old got pregnant. That was the only way they finally could prove it. Um, yes. Things like that. Or if they have left physical physical damage on a child but even in that case I've seen a girl who was burned um, with cigarettes and you could tell they were cigarette burns but she wouldn't disclose who did it mm-hmm. so they couldn't do anything because they say well she might have done it to herself how do we know she's not a self-harmer oh and you know it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty rare for kids to feel safe enough to disclose and so yeah, exactly. in the cases where they are in danger, very often those are the cases they're not going to get removed. Yep, yep. They say normally you won't say anything. I mean, why would they? They're terrified. Yeah, and even most of the time, because of the history of mental abuse that's been going on since they were little, they just they just don't. They can't. You want to talk about raising daughters? I'm trying to figure out what fucking sure. birth control to put my daughter on. Oh. 
Because here's I the don't th- know how you're dealing with that. Well, here's, I know. <laughs> here's the thing. Like, okay, she wants to go on the pill, which is fine. Okay, I was on the pill for a long time um, and when I was young. But the thing is, I don't know that I can, I don't know. I don't feel okay about just assuming that she's going to take it at the right time and stay on top of that. Or she might one day in a few years decide, you know, babies are cute and it'll love me. Why don't I throw these away? So I kind of feel like a (laughs) long-term birth control that she can't remove might be best. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's scary because even the birth control, I mean, it's what it does to you chemically too is not real great. Right. You know, and so that's, it's a hard decision. Luckily, mine has not shown, like, hardly any, you know, interest for the most part, but... But how um, old is she? She's 13. Okay. So she's just a tiny bit older than her, than mine. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, discussion about whether, I mean, I think she likes boys, but I think that she may be bisexual. Oh, we've crossed into that, too. She came home to tell me she had a girlfriend, and I'm like, okay. Yeah. I think she was trying to see if it was going to shock me, and I'm like, okay. Yeah, so, I mean. Be safe with her, too. Yeah, exactly. But I haven't had, with her and that, I haven't had near as much concern she seems to be a little behind in that aspect which mm-hmm. is weird because in a lot of ways she's further ahead and more right mature. but for some reason that just has not like blown into something that she's super serious but she's also like a little ocd about germs and stuff so i think that helps oh i feel her on that one that's the scariest part <laughs> for me i'm like don't kiss me don't touch me what are you doing <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of helps with this, with mine, is is that. And she is also super confident, which I think helps, because I know with my stepdaughter, she developed, you know, this severe need and want for male attention to Mm. justify her self-esteem and how she felt about herself. Right. And... That was terrifying, and so we definitely dealt a lot more with that with the older one than I her because she's misconfident for the most part. Um, we went through a little period where she was dealing with a girl at school that I think it really just bullied her, truly bullied her to the point where her esteem was so low, but now that we've kind of come back around through that, she's back to, she doesn't need um, to feel validated from men or anybody else, and that really helps that. Hopefully that continues. If not, they make great medication that'll help us get through this. I better come up with something good. All right. So, because I just don't want to be one of those parents who pretends like it's not going to happen. Same with the boys. Right. Like, oh. Pretending like they're not going to or telling them not to is is not going to stop them from doing it. Oh, absolutely. I buy condoms. By the you can get a fishbowl full of them that's like a hundred count on Amazon. <laughs> it comes right to your door with Prime. <laughs> that is what I do. I buy that. And I don't care if their friends want to come get them. I'm like, I will hand them out to you all day long. I'm like, everybody use them. Please use them. Because you guys are 15 and we we ain't trying to let you die over this. My son's age in eighth grade, they're already passing around STDs. Right. Well, that was my thing when he, he, I mean, he started having, the 15 year old, he started having sex, I don't know, 
12, 13, I don't remember, a few years ago. Time gets away from me. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing. I'm like, use these, please, for the love of God, use these. And there was um, a few kids who always seemed to need to use the bathroom when they came by my house. And I'm like, take them, take handfuls of them. I don't care, but y'all please use them. Because there was one girl, they, they had this one female friend in common, and I, she was she was having sex with a few of them, I think. And I'm like, if you, I said, please tell her if she needs to go to the clinic and get birth control, I will take her. Yeah. Because they were, like, she was afraid she was pregnant all the time and they were passing around oh STDs. And I'm like, no, no, y'all use these, please. I, I don't understand they're parent, gonna parents who pretend. Right. No, they're going to do it. They're, it doesn't matter. I mean. Well, they're genetically programmed too. I don't understand if these parents don't remember what it was like to be that age no and this whole mindset of if you give them those or you give them prophylactics or you give them birth control then it's giving them permission no they're gonna do it when they want control for two years before i had sex and i had the same boyfriend and there was plenty of opportunity so they're that's just not true kids are going to do it when they're ready or want to do it It, you do not influence that right and i would rather they be be prepared Otherwise, they make that decision impulsively, and they weren't protected, and then you have to deal with that problem. Yes. Oh, my God. Use your brain, people. It's not that hard. <sighs> it must be. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Have you watched the news lately? Oh, my God. I, I was talking uh, to a, a therapist. She's LPC, and she was telling me she sees a lot of adolescents, and she said that is like the number one thing she hears from parents is will you talk to them about sex and she's like what the fuck (laughs) i said you know what i why don't you just start a a referral service send them to me for 150 bucks i will do a sex workshop (laughs) (laughs) because seriously why are parents so afraid to talk to their kids about sex and if they've waited till they're teenagers it's way too fucking late too late yeah, you are way too late. They've already YouTubed and Googled that shit. They porn hubbed it. I hope they Googled. <laughs> Otherwise, they're learning all sorts of absolute foolishness from their friends. And dear God, that is some of the crazy stuff that they come up with. Because my daughter does come home and she's like, is this true? Is this true? And I'm like, no. And I need you to go back and tell your friends, no. <laughs> that is not oh, how goodness. it works. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. It's terrifying. Where did you learn about sex? Did your mom talk to you? Yeah, I think, yeah, I was pretty open with my mom. So it was always, you know, a pretty much open conversation. So that, and then, you know, I used to get my dad's magazine. So there's that, too. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. My, my dad. boundaries. Right. My parents had, or parents' dad, I don't know whose who's stuff was what, I don't care. Um, you know, every now and then I would hear the, um, the video or whatever, because this was a million, mm-hmm. a million years ago when there were actually the VHS tapes. VHS tapes. Uh, and I'm sure DVDs at some point there was a crossover. I don't remember when that happened, but, um, you know, and I, uh, found the collection at one point, um, because, because I broke into, there was a filing cabinet they kept them in and I learned how to pick the lock because that's where they kept my, um, I was, yeah, I worked since I was 12, right? And was saving money up for like when I was 16 to get a car and they had hidden my money in that, 
in that bio cabinet. Yeah, because I was running away when I was 14. So, mm-hmm. so I had to have some cash, right? So I went and stole my money, and their porn was in there. And I don't, I remember being, I don't, angry is not the word, but I was just very, I don't know what the word is. Because it wasn't the fact that the, that it was porn, because I already knew they watched porn, because, you know, I hear it every now and then. But I remember just being this irrational level of angry with him because he's a preacher and he's telling people that this is wrong and you've got a fucking drawer full of porn. I'm like, how does that yeah. work? I can, I did say that to him years later. And he's like, well, when you get to be a certain age, you need a little help. I'm like, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is it's completely hypocritical to say this is wrong and then you're doing it. That's my point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I, I hate it when people do that. That's, I mean, that's just like my number one thing. I absolutely hate it when people just are hypocrites about stuff. It's like, why? You don't have to say anything about it. Right. And he, he was big about preaching that and then, and teaching the, you know, that whole concept that a lot of Protestant churches have moved to where anything about any, even a thought about another person that's not your spouse is adultery. Yeah. So, you know, he's teaching all of that. Meanwhile, he's spending money to watch <laughs> to, oh to watch all this. And I'm like, how can you do that? How can you shame and guilt these people on Sunday and then knowing you watched that shit last night? I'm like, pick a lane. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What else did you lie about? Right? Well, God yeah. knows. <laughs> Oh, he's going to be so mad if he ever hears this. <laughs> we'll both be in big trouble. Oh, yeah, because, you know, my parents were always super about that. What happens here stays here. You don't talk about family business outside. And then, of course, I grew up to be me, and I do nothing but talk about family business everywhere. It's fun. You have to, you have to let it out. Well, the thing is, I think, you know, people relate better, especially when I do these public speaking or the workshops people relate better to stories and I don't feel okay telling other people's stories so I just tell mine (laughs) yeah I know and then I get all sorts of problems from that (laughs) but it's okay (laughs) well you know I took down my blog you know I used to have a blog for years uh, and I ended up taking it down because um that was a complaint in um my youngest son's custody suit he brought that up because a um one of my speeches had been published and then i reblogged it and it mentioned um his abusive behavior it did not mention him by name it didn't say any horrible things that he did it just mentioned his abusive behavior and he was trying to say that that made me unfit for custody and so it was that a little... seems like a stretch it was, but it was this long, protracted thing, and I can't, you know, and we're going to trial, and you know what a big deal that is, and so I just pulled it down. I just pulled the whole thing down, because I'm like, I'm not fighting over this shit. This is ridiculous. You're not going to use this to leverage. Yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah, so that's yeah. why I don't have it anymore. Of course, now I'm doing the podcast, so we'll see how that goes, but whatever. I've had cut. Yeah, I love, I, I, I love I, like, a polar thing. I'm either super private, but then when I share, it's, like, way too much information. <laughs> So there's like no filter there. You don't you don't get it coded. So it's hilarious because in some ways I'm so private. But if I'm going to talk about it, then it's not there's not going to be a filter there. 
Which is why I asked you on the podcast, because that's the whole point, is to just lay it all out there and we're unfiltered and no shame, just put it out there. Yes, well, you know, hopefully all you guys, it is what it is. I mean, right. I am who I am, and so it's like there's no point in hiding it, so. I wish more people could get to that, and that's what I'm hoping comes out of this. I know. That would be good. So tell us where we can find your art and your blog. Um, okay, the blog, which is bookedandloaded.com, and then all my art typically is on warpedbydesignart.com, although I really suck at, like, posting anything on there at all, so it's embarrassing skimpy but it does exist <laughs> I have the same problem there's like six things in my store on my art page and I'll see when pe- the alert when people come on and I'm like there's nothing for them to shop but on if they no. go to your websites are there links to your social media pages so they can follow there yes all the social media all interlinks because I've never broken off the art from you know my established stuff because originally that's where my sales were coming from were from authors placing orders and stuff right. like that so I have never and I'm still like on the fence about whether it's a good idea to break it off or not so everything really links to the same stuff when they have separate Facebook pages but like Instagram is all the same and Twitter is all the same and um, just the Facebook pages but that's pretty much it you can contact the podcast at brokebrokenpodcast at gmail.com the broken broken podcast can be found on twitter at broke broken show on instagram and facebook at broke broken podcast